1: This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ally. Alley, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now... On to my episode with Jeff Jeff Price. Price.
0: I would not have a career unless people like you existed, unless an artist or a musician allowed me to work for them. We all exist off your coattails. Don't ever forget that. All of us. We don't have the talent. You do. You make culture. You make art. You make the world go around, And all of us are trying to work for you. Don't ever forget that.
1: Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge uh yeah everybody tuning in you invited you invited no matter what mood you in get excited get excited everybody love the music let me tell you how they do it whether writer or an agent let me tell you how they made it you are now talking to a silent giant want to walk in their shoes silent giants want to study they move silent giants want to know what they do silent giants silent giants (laughs) y'all welcome to the silent giants podcast a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at @corey_cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is Jeff Price. Jeff is the co-founder of TuneCore, the world's largest digital music distribution service. TuneCore offers musicians and other rights holders the opportunity to distribute, sell, or stream their music through online retailers, such as iTunes, Spotify, and Tidal. Jack moved on from TuneCore and founded the mechanical royalty collection agency, RDM, which helps publishing members accurately get paid from YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, and other streaming services. In this episode, we chats about his upbringing, how he formed his record label, SpinArt Records, back in the 90s, starting TuneCore, his new company, RDM, and a whole lot more. Overall, Jeff is a music industry badass and shares his knowledge that I think you'll really appreciate. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the entrepreneur, music industry pioneer, my friend, the silent giant, Jeff Price. Uh-uh-uh, one-two, one-two, one-two.
0: I have you in my right ear only, if that matters. Yeah, yeah make sit. sure you ask me about the nudie bar story from uh, from london
1: that will definitely be talked about yeah,
0: because i have been i have been wanting to tell that story for years <laughs> and i've never had a platform to do it but well, there we go yeah there's so much to talk about so how may i help you what's going what's <laughs> going on jeff how you doing brother i am tired today Di- t- you say tired I, I am tired today i am too i'm usually much more ebullient but uh yeah right now i'm just i'm tired
1: Look, well, this, this is my first morning interview on, on the podcast. Yeah, but you
0: look like sunshine, man. You, you, know, you come in the, here, there's like a ball of energy around you.
1: It's body. not me, man. It's this. It's, 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 a coffee. it's, it's, it's <laughs> black cocaine, McDonald's coffee, one dollar <laughs> and <laughs> nine cents. Uh huh. It's like rocket fuel, bro. <laughs> like this, this. This. This is not legal.
0: <clears throat> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when, whenever you're having a rough day, one dollar <laughs> and nine cents would yep. cure it. For sure. For sure. Awesome.
0: Yeah, man. So, so where are you from, bro? That's a good question. I'm a mutt. Uh, so I grew up uh, between kindergarten and graduation of high school. It was eight schools over those 12 years. It was New York, it was Boston, DC, Chicago. Uh, that's primarily where I went. So, yeah, graduated high school in DC. Okay. Born in Boston. Wait, did you live in DC, DC, or like? I lived like in DC. I lived outside DC. <laughs> I lived across the street from American University. Okay. Massachusetts All right. Avenue. There we go. It drives me crazy when people say I'm from D.C. Or where Bethesda, Maryland. Yes. You're yes. like, No, that's not D.C. Arlington. <laughs> yeah. Arlington. <laughs> nah. Rest nah. Of Virginia. Crystal City. No, nah. it, that's not D.C. D.C. is that little so almost tri- uh, diamond shape minus you know the top right hand corner. That's not. You're not. That's not fucking D.C. It's not so, D.C. Yeah.
1: It's not D.C. Yeah. For sure. I, I have friends that live like man like near Dumfries, and I'm like, dude, that's. And they're like, yeah, you're not. You know, near D.C. I'm like, dude, you're not near D.C. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, so no, I went to. So it was high school, it was tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. It was uh, right by uh, university, of the District of Columbia, the Van Sudc Metro stop. That's where I would get off, and walk to school. Okay, okay. okay. And w- you, are you a Redskins fan? Uh, no, Patriots. I'm from Boston. Oh God, you know, you know what though? I, you know, which means I'm also a Red Sox fan. So until okay. recently, you know, you can't give me grief because we lost everything always oh for sure oh, yeah. oh
1: yeah, yeah yeah but you had the celtics though you had the bruins I we mean. did
0: this but the celtics now versus what the celtics were in the in the late 70s early 80s is very very different right of course you know it's uh but,
1: but you had some winning
0: we did but i stopped following i don't i don't care as much about the celtics now you know and the, the pats i love and the red sox i love and
1: either the patriots great. i i i went back and listened to um sometimes it, when you live in the moment because we're all living in the moment, we forget how things were before. It's kind of like having the iPhone. It's like, oh, you kind of forget about, oh, that Palm Pilot thing that we used to use. Like,
0: oh yeah. I had to take my phone into the Apple Store yesterday to get a new battery. I didn't have it for four hours, and I almost died. Yeah, so I can't believe how dependent I am on this thing. It it, it really actually bummed me out. Yes,
1: and uh, so uh, the other day, I like to go back in time and, and look at things and how they were on YouTube, and like, oh man. So I went back like, to like Steve Jobs keynote. Mm. Uh, speech from the first one oh, yeah. and like seeing the reaction from the crowd. If anyone's listened to the show and you want to be inspired, go back to that first keynote speech from Steve Jobs and he like uh, he shows, like, there was one part where he he shows off his uh, uh, the music part mm-hmm. and you see all the artist's names in alphabetical order and he said, well, how do I get to like I don't think what it was, like an artist with a K and he takes his finger and swipes up and the crowd's like, oh! Oh! Yeah. oh.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah like, everyone. You know, yeah.
1: Like super, super hype. Yeah. But that's how I thought about uh, the Patriots. I went back. I was like, you know what? I'm a hater. I hate the Patriots. But I was like, let me go back in time and get a glimpse of of the story of Tom Brady and Belichick and and, and Robert Kraft. And I went back and like, it was like a 45 minute NFL documentary on the 2001 Patriots. And you get a a, a greater sense of like how hard it is to be great.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the Patriots weren't the Patriots, till so they were the Patriots. Exactly. I mean, like, it was a Jim Plunkett, if I recall correctly from my childhood. Was yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the Patriots were hardly a dynasty. It was, the, it was the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's what was going on when I was a kid. Right. Right, Roger Starbuck, yeah. uh, Terry Bradshaw.
1: I like I, the Steelers. I'm old. <laughs> I, I, I like the Steelers, though. I rock with them. Yeah. But, but I, I just have to say that, that I, I now have to support greatness. And the underdog, as the story of the underdog, the Patriots,
0: it actually is. Well, not not anymore. But I'll tell you what kills me is uh, how many years ago? It was the perfect season with the Super Bowl. Oh, that was like and 2000. And he caught the fucking football with uh, one hand uh, oh, on his yeah. helmet. David Tyree. Yeah. What the hell? Dog. You don't do that. It's, a, it's
1: okay. It was like super glue. Honestly, when you've won how many titles now? It's
0: not okay. It's... <laughs> perfect season in the Super Bowl. They had him. It was going to be a sack. He catches the fucking football You're... with one hand against his helmet. No, up in the air. Tackle. No, tackled. no he, one's. He, crying for you guys
1: anymore no one's crying for you guys anymore okay after you got the malcolm butler interception
0: in the end zone yeah okay yeah but i also remember freshman year of college uh watching bill buckner from the boston red Sox with that ground ball down the first base line oh yeah that was bad oh my god and then the wild pitch that was bad oh god that was bad that was brutal that was brutal oh Uh, and then they lost the next game i anyway but i digress
1: well, I'm a Washington sports fan, and you're not going to get any tears from me. <laughs>
0: so, that's okay. Sports, fuck you, it, man. It's, 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 yeah, I'm with you. It, uh, fuck you back. Um, At
1: least you have memories. You know me yeah. have memories. Well,
0: you know, I'll tell you, man, the people that grew up in New York, I lived here when I was um, – I moved here first when I was 13. I went to a boarding school for half the year, Rumsey Hall in Washington, Connecticut, which was like living, if you're familiar with an author named John Irving. No. uh, Cider House Rules. uh, Oh, yeah, 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 It was like living in one of his his novels. It was, and then uh, I moved back to New York with my mom, and Lynn lived out of the closet in our apartment, because it was a small apartment, and I went to this other, anyway, so that was 13. We were here for one year, then I left and i came back post-graduating college um uh, you know so my point is uh, yankees fans have always been a pain in the ass
1: well, what do your parents do uh
0: my mother started an advertising agency after my parents were divorced when i was three so in like okay. 1970 my mom started an ad agency wow and it, it was like the television show mad men i actually i mean i remember this stuff that the men that the treatment i mean it was it was like Mad men and uh, my father is a dentist who had a midlife crisis at around 45 and became an actor and a model so he became the spokesperson for the national uh, the um, American Dental Association and occasionally it appears in advertisements and it's kind of funny. You know. oh, he, was ju-
1: he was doing it, though. Yeah,
0: it, my parents are good looking people. Yeah. Right? So my mom was actually a model as well in the 60s. How? You,
1: yeah. you come from, as my grandma says, you come from good stuff. Yeah, I
0: just, didn't, I just didn't get all the benefits of the good stuff. You're stock. a handsome dude. I'll take it. Thank you got you. swag? I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, right back at you. But yeah, so dad is now retired and mom is now retired. And uh, But yeah, that's the background. Mom with her own business. Dad is a dentist actor.
1: Yeah. And, and how, were you a big fan of music growing up?
0: No, uh, because I wasn't exposed to it. You know, I, I actually remember uh, listening. There was this, just a, uh, what is it called? Uh, Break Up to Makeup. What's it's, that? Oh, it's a horrible song. Sorry. From the, uh, it was, I just, I mean, I, I'm so old. I remember when we only had AM radio. So uh, sitting in the car, listening to this song called uh, Break Up to Makeup. And I just remember as a kid, it must have been four or five, Just just hating it, not liking it. And all I knew was what was being played on the radio, the top 40 radio stuff. And I just, I didn't enjoy it. So music was not an integral part of my life. It became part of my life when I got to D.C. in 10th grade. And I met my friend Joel Morowitz, who became my partner, or I became his partner, for a record label we launched called Spin Art that we ran for about 20 years. But Joel introduced me to this thing called Ska. Which is you know, I was which is a type of music. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what the hell is Scott? And this band at the time called the English Beat. And there was I remember the first time I heard the song. It was called I Confess by the English Beat, and I really liked it.
2: (laughs) Still wasn't right.
0: And I couldn't understand how is it I don't know this? Why is this not on the radio? And this sounds really stupid, but I remember walking into Tower Records one day with my dad because I was all excited because I discovered this this thing called Ska, right? And I looked at the the racks of Tower Records filled with vinyl because this was pre-CDs. And all of a sudden it clicked with me that, oh, yeah, there's all this other music. Those records that I'm seeing on the shelves, that's other music, stuff I've never heard of, you know, and I walked over. To the bin, and I found the English beat, and I found a, a record, and, and it, it just it just clicked with me that holy shit! And from there began the exploration into discovering who I am through music. So I became a goth kid back in the early '80s, you know, with the black fingernail polish, eyeliner, and you know, conformist like on South Park, and you know, Echo and the Bunny Man, New Order, uh, Joy Division, Susie and the Banshees, Tanya, uh, Japan, David Sylvian. I mean, go through the list of Cure. You know, this is back before these bands were even big and uh you know that helped define who you are clearly as a as a kid but that's how i got into music and uh yeah it was 10th grade i remember graduating uh graduating high school which was in 85 and i was over my then girlfriend's house and she had this new thing called a cd player and sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band by the beatles which i had never actually listened to and uh you could program the CD player to play the tracks in whatever order you wanted to, and there was original. Well, I mean, it's a CD player. You can say play track one first, play track three second. You know, it's not that big of a deal, right? So, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know that CD players could even do that. Yeah, they could. Wow. So, you know, back, back back in the old days. Um, so, there in the liner notes, it talked about the original track order for Sergeant Pepper's was you know a different order than it ultimately was. So, I remember we programmed it to play it that way, and that was basically the first time I really got introduced to the Beatles. I mean, I was living in New York City when John Lennon was shot. And I remember when it went down, I was coming back from school, I got home, and I I didn't understand the importance, at least to the musical community and songwriting community at the time. All I knew was John Lennon was shot. I knew he was one of the Beatles. I couldn't even name, you know, George Harrison or Ringo Starr. But my point is I, I got into music late. I just had never been exposed to it. Hell, I didn't even discover the who until I was like 38. Because when I was in college... Uh, the fraternity kids, uh, the fr- frat dudes, as I like to call them, many of them were, not all fraternity members are buttheads, but in my particular college, Franklin and Marshall College, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, degree in sociology, which is perfect for waiting tables, by the way, uh, there were just a lot of frat dudes that were assholes. You know, date rape was the thing. And, um Anyway, they would listen to Zep. They would listen to The Who. And because of that, I chose not to listen to it. I would listen to the alternative stuff yeah. to define who I was. So once I got over that self-imposed barrier and I opened my mind to the concept of listen to it, all of a sudden you listen to Led Zeppelin and it's, holy shit, the production on this. Listen to those dr- Listen to the cor- it's just unbelievable. Same thing with The Who. So again, I was a late bloomer into music. Uh, my parents never exposed me to it and I found my way into it. And then, you know, ultimately when I graduated college, I started a record label. Did you ever want to play? I tried. I just don't have the talent. I tried piano, violin, <laughs> recorder. Who doesn't try recorder? Yeah, know, of right? course. Uh, doot, doot, I, I, doot. I think the longest I did on anything was drums, but my left hand just, I just can't do it. I tried. I've tried guitar. I've tried everything. I was even in a band for two seconds in college and I cannot sing to save my life. Um, so I have a daughter who uh, I don't know how the hell she ended up with DNA that allows her to be adept at piano. But she's she can read. She's eight and she can read music like I can't believe. And, you know, left hand doing one thing, right hand doing another. It's it's pretty cool.
1: And, and so uh, where did the idea come from to, like, start your own label? Like, what was the process behind that?
0: So I graduated college, as I mentioned, with a degree in sociology, which, as I also said, is perfect for waiting tables. And uh, that is what I did. And as I was doing that, actually, I write. I write a lot. And I had written a movie. uh, I'd written a a play that had been sort of produced. I'm not talking off-Broadway. I'm talking like a local theater company in Lancaster. Um, And that's what I wanted to do. I ended up becoming a production assistant for a full-length feature film. It was called No Telling. I think the director was, no, one of the uh, actors is a guy named David Van Tegum, if I remember. He was a really good drummer from New York. Anyway, it was in Woodstock. And the uh, one of the people, the producers of it was a woman named Rachel Horowitz who went on to produce like Moneyball and some other big feature films. But I was working on that set and I was writing my little movie script. And as I learned in the film, I had this idealized version that you could work your way up a totem pole. No, you can't. You don't work from production assistant to like key grip to best boy to, you know, producer director. Basically, if you're a production assistant, you're just carrying heavy shit on behalf of other people and getting them food. Yeah. That, that's really it. And uh, after about a week there where I was getting two to three hours of sleep a night, not being paid anything, I quit. I couldn't take it. I mean, I almost killed 16 people one night driving them back from Woodstock to New York. Uh, because I fell asleep at the wheel, literally in a 15-passenger in a van full of people. And I drove off the road, and I almost killed myself and, <laughs> and everybody. So, um, yeah, I came back. And then what I did is I started my own business selling personalized children's books out of a kiosk in a shopping mall, the pavilion at the old post office in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, so, Well, first I started in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I moved back there because it was a big-ass shopping mall called Park City, And uh, one of the arms had this thing called Clover, which was the name of a store. So I took all the money I had, and I rented a little kiosk. And the way these books would work is, remember, this is 1992 now, 91, 90. Anyway, you would come and you pick a book that you wanted, like the Little Mermaid story or the, you know, the Hanukkah or whatever the hell it was. And I had a computer. You would tell me the first and last name of the child, the age, the hometown. And we had these pre-printed, pre-printed pages I would buy. And I'd put them into a laser printer at the time, which would do maybe seven pages a minute. And then it would print them print onto the page, and they would take these pages and bind them together and stick them in this hardcover, right? And it was like 10 bucks for the book. So um, I did that between uh, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and, uh, and Christmas. Six weeks in that mall listening to the same Christmas music over and over and over. Oh, my God. And... Um, it was an experience, uh, I'll admit. You know, there was an A&W store there. I'll never forget this, A&W root beer store. Yeah, yeah. Hot dogs, right? And I just remember the day this couple came in, and they took their baby, they put it on the table with, with just feces coming out of that diaper, <laughs> changing the kid on the table while the other kid picked up the ketchup bottle and just was just sucking the ketchup out of it. And it, I just, oh, anyway, um, but <laughs> I don't know, that image has stuck with me. But anyway, so I was in the shopping mall, and we were selling these books, and you know, it did pretty well. I made, I ended up making like seven thousand dollars in sort of a net profit over these six weeks. Oh, and, that's and, great! Yeah, it was. And I was like, wow. Uh, now what? And so then I was going to open a retail store called um, Culture Shock, with a seven foot two guy named Bosco, who was from Nigeria, who would import carved goods and uh, found a location and everything, but it just didn't come together. Surprise! In the meantime, my old high school friend Joel was really into music, collected seven-inch vinyl, was really into what we call indie rock, right? And you were still at the cusp of CDs, so most of this music wasn't on CD, it was only in on vinyl. And Joel wanted to release a, uh, an album. And he wanted it to be a compilation of bands, so we collaborated. I think Joel, of the 17 bands in there, I think I picked one, and it was called Suddenly Tammy. And Joel did the rest, and these were artists that had recorded stuff on seven-inch vinyl, you know, handshake deals with friends and shit. And so we put out this CD called One Last Kiss. And what was really interesting, the timing, it was just, you know, life is timing and luck. You got to make your luck sometimes. But we put out the CD of these 17 bands at the kind of around the time Nirvana had just hit. So the importance of that is there was a big segregation between what we call alternative music and what we call top 40 music, right? Top 40 was top 40. Top 40 was Boys to Men, Backstreet Boys. Uh, it it was that pop hits. It was not grunge. It was not rock. It was pop. And it was very, you know, it was what I call a Twinkie. It's mass consumable. Everybody eats it at least once. You get sick of them. But it was that. then on the other side, you had alternative in indie. And alternative was, you know, U2. U2 at the time wasn't what they were now. U2 at the time sold a couple hundred thousand copies of their albums at most, right? Uh, Nirvana was on a, previously on a label called Sub Pop out of Seattle, yeah. right? And so they released, they got signed to uh, to Geffen, and uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, and a really weird thing happened where you had commercial radio. There's different types of commercial radio. There's R&B, there's jazz, there's hip-hop, there's blues, there's rock, there's pop, there's AAA, there's country, right? You had all these different formats that play different styles of music. And they're all very segregated, but the, the brass ring is, is usually something called AC uh, or, all, or Top 40. That's really where you want to get to. Top 40s, that's, that, those are the hits. If you happen there, you're massive, right? And alternative radio was smaller. Uh, in DC, we had 99.1, WHFS. Mm-hmm. That was the alternative. In, in New York, you had WDRE or WLIR, uh, it, but you know or K-Rock in California. But it was nothing like Z100. You know? those were the big stations. And what was really weird is this song Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, which was alternative from this grunge band from Seattle off of an indie label called Sub Pop, began to cross over and end up on Top 40 radio. And that just never happened before. You never had alternative merging over into Top 40. And once that happened, it sort of opened the doors. All of a sudden you have Pearl Jam migrating that way in. And you, you began to have a blending of the two. Different genres, so the major record labels began looking at the independent labels that would do this alternative music as a great source of what we call A and R, artist and repertoire, to find mm-hmm. the new artists that they could sort of upstream and bring into their systems. Um, so it was at that time we had released this compilation album, One Last Kiss, and uh, you know what we wanted to do when we released the CD was include something we call a fanzine, which going back to the to the old days again, which was a little magazine, a little fanzine where you would photocopy, right, little pages, and we wanted each band to write something about themselves so that we would include with each CD, so when you bought it for these 17 bands, you had information on it. And we just couldn't get the bands to give us the information to make the little fan scene, but we're sitting there with, the CDs are literally sitting in my living room in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right, and then the jewel boxes and the separate trays and the little paper we had made to insert, and to save money, we just made them ourselves, Right. So we couldn't wait anymore because that's, that's money. You paid for it. It's in there. Right. And, you know, being naive or like, everyone's going to buy it. You know, the thought of how do you market promote distribute never occurred to us because we're too stupid to think of that. And why wouldn't it sell? It's really good music. So we just released the CD. And I remember, I think we mailed seven copies to the press. That was it. I mailed one to Rolling Stone. I mailed one to spin. I mailed one to alternative press. I mailed one to uh, the Washington post and it was bizarre. We ended up getting a full-page review, I mean, like a whole page in spin. Now, this is, again, back in 1990. That's spin mattered then. Right, spin right. Is, it, it doesn't matter now, but a whole page on it. And then the Washington Post, like the, the daily newspaper out of D.C., it ran a full-page review on it because a lot of these bands were from the D.C. area. And in uh, Rolling so I just it got reviewed everywhere. And then the next thing that happened is I began to receive these sort of inbound phone calls from A&R people at major labels asking us for copies of the CD. And, you know, me being me, I'm like, well, you can buy one. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm, you know, I'm Skippy with, you know, Warner. I'm like, no, I do understand. That'll be $10, <laughs> right? So then we had Attitude, which wasn't meant to be Attitude. It was just, dude, you want to buy it? You can buy it. I'm, you know, you're in a major label. You don't have 10 bucks? Come on. Um, you know, I'm a kid in a bedroom. But the other thing was we didn't include any information about the bands in the booklet beyond the name of the band and the song name because we never got the fanzine done. So the industry made this assumption that all these bands were actually, quote, signed to our record label when they weren't. I mean, these, these were just like, hey, can I put out a, a small factory? They were on there. Velocity Girl, uh, Lois Mafio. There was, um, oddly enough, there was a band called Courtney Love named after Kurt Courtney Cobain's, Love. Yeah, it was named after her. It wasn't her. It's just the band named themselves. this is before, you know, she went on to her own infamy or fame. So, um, yeah, the the industry began to have this perception that we were bigger than we were. And, like, I'm a kid in in an apartment in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My partner, Joel, is an intern at IRS uh, and then SBK Records here in New York. They weren't signed to our label. And then we were like, you can buy it. So this sort of blend of of weird stuff began to create this perception of the label to be something that it was a lot more than. So the next thing that happens is uh, suddenly Tammy agrees to let my label, Joel, Joel and my label, it's called Spin Art Records, release their first album, which is self-titled. And, um, you know, suddenly Tammy had been on the front page of something CMJ, which used to stand for college media journal. Oh yeah. Here in New York. Yeah. Well, CMJ at the time was a, uh, a magazine, which was basically stapled together in the top left hand corner, which would track radio play on college radio and people would send demos to them and they would review the demos and feature them. And they were influential at the time. It, you know, they morphed into something else as radio has changed and the market has changed. So, Uh, suddenly Tammy recorded their album in uh, the basement of the bass player, Kenny Heitmuller, who has the wingspan of an eagle as far as his hand is concerned, and he played a fretless bass, unbelievably talented, and the drum player was Beth's brother, Jay. And they make this record, and of course, naivety works really well here, so I just pick up the phone and I start calling commercial radio stations, telling them they gotta play it, they gotta play it, right? The probability of getting play is is slim to none, but I do it anyway, and... um, They have these things called specialty shows where the alternative records, the underground stuff, would get one play of a song on a Sunday night between like 1 and 2 a.m. Yeah. So uh, we mail out this record, or it's CD, and it gets some specialty play. But in New York, there's this DJ at WDRE. So New York is important because it's it's a major market. It's a major metropolitan market. It's influential. Mm -hmm. And WDRE at the time, 1991, mattered. Uh, it, would, it would influence. And there was a DJ there named Donna Donna because apparently it wasn't just Donna. D- Donna
1: yeah. wasn't enough. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Don don't,
1: don't use it with Donna, Donna Summers. Uh, no, this I'm Donna Donna. Donna.
0: Donna. <laughs> and her other sister, Donna Donna Donna. So, no, it was Donna Donna. And sh- she really liked the record. And they played this one song. Um, oh, my God. What was it called? It's called Plant Me. And they played Plant Me on the air and this radio show, and I began to, uh, you know, push her to play it again and again. And there was a guy named Tom Calderone who was the production manager, PM, of the station, who went on, I think, to become the head of MTV programming. And she began to lobby Tom to allow this song to be played on a Tuesday. I think on Tuesday, had something called Shriek of the Week, where they would play four new songs, four or five new songs. And then the callers would call back and choose which one they like best, and then that would be the shriek of the week, and that would get some more play and get programmed in. Because it, it, this is a whole different conversation, but you know, there's a very small amount of time where you can get programmed into on radio stations. Mm. You know, They have heavy rotation, medium rotation, light rotation. So if you take a, a seven-day week and you remove the weekends, because that's usually special programming, you got five days a week, you got 24 hours a day, So multiply five by times 24 is what, like 120 hours or something. And then you got to remove the time for the witty banter, the weather, the news, the commercials, right? So you're left with about half, maybe 50, 60 hours of programming. So uh, where you can actually play music, which isn't a lot of time. And then you would have your heavy rotation songs, which would get played somewhere between, I can't remember the numbers now, something like 20 to 40 times a week, uh, and you think each song runs three to four minutes, so think how much time that eats up. So you got 14 to 20 songs being played somewhere between you know 20 to 40 times. Then you get your medium rotation, which has a smaller number of spins, and your light rotation, which is even less. So there's not a lot of room in there, right? And if they're going to take something, put your song in, that means they're not going to play something else, right. And they're getting pimped and hit up by the major record labels and the, and the production people, the promotions people. You know Charlie Walk, which we're all reading about right now. Um, who was uh, head of Universal Republic. Uh, he was over at Sony Columbia 550. It was a label there. You know, they, they would call up the radio stations. They had a lot more whistles and bells than I had. Right. They had money. They could take them on trips. They could you know, buy, pay off their mortgages. They you know, do things to get that radio play. I couldn't do that. So anyway, the, uh, before radio kind of got completely sewed up and owned by the major music promotion companies, because then you could hire independent promoters as well that would create channels for legal payola basically right so donna hits up tom tom agrees to put the song plant me into uh the shriek of the week you know one of the four or five songs so they play it and it wins you know there was like a new u2 song there was a new omd song if you remember oh. the band omd and and suddenly tammy won this song plant me off of this tiny little indie label out of new york because uh, i moved from lancaster to new york by that point And it gets what we call number one on the phone. So the other thing is they do all sorts of research when they play stuff on radio. And they have companies call people in the market to get to, did you like this song? Do you know it? Do you recognize the lyrics? So it was getting a good reaction. People understood it. They were calling it by name very quickly. So that was one thing that was happening. Another thing that happened is my brother had moved to England. um, And he was working for, I think, AIG Insurance Company at the time dealing with foreign currency exchange. And I recall Virgin Atlantic had this special where you could fly in round trip for like 200 bucks. So I went to visit my brother. And while I was there, uh, we had an attorney. Everything's such a weird story. We had a a friend named, who referred me over to a lawyer named Ed Blomquist out of Boston. And Ed was our attorney. And then to help out Spin Art, like we knew how to write a contract. And then Ed had to stop, but referred us over to a guy named Gary Baddeley who was a, in my opinion, was a British aristocrat. Uh, and he talked like one and, and very elegant man and a uh, very smart man. And Gary had a friend in England named Peter Nash that worked at a company called ICM Fair Warning, which was a talent agency, booking agency out of London. Okay. Like I knew what any of this meant. Like if you're a listener, your reaction to this was mine at the time. Like I have no idea what any of this means. That's fine. So I go over to visit my brother and Peter Nash uh, was kind enough to meet me. Uh, because Gary asked him to. Peter Nash was an important man within the industry and booked very influential bands. One of the bands that they were booking on a, uh, a European tour at the time and then into North America was a band called Suede, which, um, if you're not familiar with them, is very glam rock. But literally, when I landed in London, it was like the Second Coming of of Christ over there. With Suede was everywhere. I mean, they were they were everywhere. Poster, just they were they were monstrous. They were. They were unbelievably huge. And they were coming to America for the first time. So I walk into Peter's office. I don't know suede. I just saw these posters of them. I don't know who this guy is. I'm not even sure what ICM Fair Warning is. And I drop a little stack of CDs on his desk. You know, it has a band called The Lilies in it that we released, throw that beat in the garbage can, and a Suddenly Tammy CD. I just leave it, and I drop it, and go, and I, you know, bop around England, London for the first time. And I get back, and we get a phone call. And the phone call asks if suddenly Tammy would like to open for Suede on their first U.S. and North American tour. I'm like, yeah, sure, why? That's great. You know, not even understanding how important this is. Yeah. And not understanding that other bands are offering to pay Suede to open for them. I'm competing with all the major labels and the acts that they have, and, you know, somehow they picked suddenly Tammy. Like, sure. So Joel and I rent a uh, 15-passenger van, we load Kenny and and uh, Jay and Beth into it, throw the gear in, and we begin driving. You know, fourteen thousand miles on a North American tour.
1: now I, I have a question now yeah, sure. because there there's a a point where, you know, when they were getting looked at by labels in the very beginning, and they were thinking that you were a label, but there was no maybe legal legitimacy to the fact that you were this label. Like, how did you get? All of this, like contractually, okay, or get, make it an actual business?
0: Well, yeah. So, after we released the CD, and we then got an attorney, and then we signed bans, and we had a lawyer draft the contract. And we okay. did, it actually, you know, another bizarro story the law firm that we were using out of Boston, uh, we never ended up paying. It was a reputable firm, and, and they did great work. The problem was uh, the, the, one of the two founders of the law firm had a heart attack in a CVS in Boston, and I believe passed away. And the firm got dissolved. And in doing so, all of our billable hours just disappeared. and We never had to pay the bill. And then we ended up over with Gary Badley. So, I mean, I told you, I couldn't have dreamt this. I couldn't have put this structure together of the weird sequence of events that have occurred to cause this moment in my life. So to do that, yeah, we, we contacted Ed. We got contracts. Suddenly, Tammy signed a contract, right? So we did these contracts that were legitimate and real and later on we changed because i felt they they weren't fair to the artist you know we did a standard recording contract with transfer ownership of copyrights and royalty rates we ended up doing 50/50 net profit splits in the future where we wouldn't own copyrights but that's a different topic but that's that's how we did it it's just we fell into it and by the way the money that we needed along the way credit cards it was just charging on credit cards and uh, and just making sure you paid that minimum each month. And, uh, wow. You know, the idea of it not succeeding never occurred to me. Things I do now still don't. Like, why won't that work? Of course it will work. Of course. There's no reason why this will fail. So, um, you know, I still believe that to this day over the things I do. There's no reason why what I do won't succeed. I, I can't imagine. It doesn't even occur to me what the obstacles are. You know, you just do it. Yeah. You know? And then you meet people that tell you why you can't do it. And you're like, no, that makes no sense.
1: And so you, you had, uh, you you're running the label for 20 years?
0: But ultimately, yeah.
1: And, and what caused you to, to, to leave the label?
0: Well, the label, after 17, 18 years, it was no longer viable. It, it just became defunct. And that's where the idea for TuneCore came from, which became the largest music distribution company in the world. So literally, the the record label spin art in two thousand and five was, as Monty Python, the comedic troupe, calls it, a dead parrot. It it was it was done. We weren't selling records. Maybe it was a Napster. Was it piracy? Was it we were releasing music nobody wanted? I don't know. We just it just it just did we overspend? Oh, well, God, we spent some aggressive money on a band called Apollo Sunshine, and it just didn't take. And um, you yeah, know, we we just. Couldn't stay in business. It was the first time I had to lay off an employee. I was in tears. You know, um, there were four of us. That was it. The whole label's four people. That's all it ever was. Uh, and I remember I was in the shower one night and at home trying to figure out how can I stay in business? How do I stay in the music industry? Is there something I can do that's different? And digital music services had popped up in 1996. <clears throat> I had been on the phone with a uh, the manager for a band called The Pixies. And the Pixies is a very important seminal alternative band, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, there's a, the lead singer-songwriter named Frank Black. His real name is, is Charles Thompson, but he goes by the name Frank Black or Black Francis. He has different pseudonyms. And I was on the phone with him because we had a band that I wanted to have open for Frank Black on tour. The band was called Lotion, a great band. And uh, I was on the phone with Ken, the manager, and he puts me on hold and he comes back. And he says, well, that fell through. <clears throat> and I said, what fell through? He said, oh, well, Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam had a record label. And uh, we were going to do a deal with him for a solo album from Frank Black, who had just been let go from uh, Rick Rubin's label called American. And yeah, he won't do the deal with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. He won't do the deal with us because we did a deal with this other company for our digital rights. Now, this was 1996. Wow. So- yeah digital rights like that I yeah. wouldn't even know what that mean correct what that
1: meant in 96 yeah right
0: so I'm like I don't care will you do a deal with us and he's like make me an offer so that's how we ended up signing Frank black from the pixies and released like seven of his albums and some pixie stuff just through that phone call but the relevance of that phone call is he had done a deal with a company called good noise and good noise became a company called emusic and emusic uh, was the first online digital music service selling music for paid download as 99 cents And I began working with uh, Good Noise, Gene Hoffman and Bob Cohn, uh, sort of the guys, the chairman and the CEO. Gene at the time was 20 years old, and he became the youngest CEO of a NASDAQ-listed corporation in the history of of NASDAQ, a publicly traded stock market. They raised $120 million during the dot-com boom. I didn't get any of it. I got stock options. I learned what those were. And uh, I became their VP, uh, Interim Vice President of Content Acquisition, and I was the uh, temporary head of the New York office, all of which made me sound more important than I actually was. But my goal was to pick up the, the phone and call other record labels and let do deals with them to license their recordings to eMusic so they could put them in the store and make them available for people to buy. So that's how I got into digital, Okay, right? I got into it at birth. I just happened to get lucky, and I took to it like a duck to water. I just really understood it the way it moved and it occurred to me as spin art records began to go out of business and iTunes came into existence I realized that the whole structure of the music industry had changed because traditionally you needed to have a 500,000 square foot warehouse with 20 foot high ceilings where you would store CDs you had to make the inventory up front and hope to god it sold and if it didn't you had to absorb the cost of it And then what you would do is these companies called distributors, they would uh, pick up the phone and call the places where the CDs would go, record stores, right? And they would try to convince them to take this piece, this particular record in stock because at a certain point at... At the record store, if something's in stock, something else is not because they've got a finite item on the shelf space. And then you have to buy your way into these stores. They're called co-op advertising where you pay the store money and really what you're doing is you're renting out a location in the store, like the front rack when you walk in or or you rent uh, access to a listening station. You
1: know, it's a, it's like, a, like the beer industry in America. Exactly. They even buy like height on the rack. Exactly, okay. same shit.
0: Got it. Right. So everything in the music industry through physical, you manufacture up front. Uh, You had to pay to get it onto the shelf, usually somewhere between $1.50 to $3 per CD. So if you ship 3,000 CDs, you're going to spend maybe uh, $9,000 to ship 3,000 CDs, right? If you ship a million CDs, you can do the math. And um, the problem also was that the CDs or the vinyl could be returned back at any point for a full refund. So everything was on consignment in the music industry. You never know what you sold. You only know what you shipped. And if you could, you can artificially force out large number of CDs through these programs where you could buy, they're called co-ops, mm-hmm. right? You could force out 100,000 units. You had to pay for those 100,000 units up front, make it a buck a CD. You're paying $300,000 in co-op. You're marketing, you're promoting, uh, and it doesn't sell. And then all that inventory comes back and you have to refund the money. Mm. Right. By the way, the major labels had about a three percent success rate and a ninety-seven percent failure rate. Those three percent, the Alanis Morissette sets would offset, you know, Screw Tractor. Right. right? So, um, yeah, but you, so you'd have to pick, pack, and ship. Then you need a warehouse. You need a pallet. You need a truck. You need to ship the inventory. You need to place it on the shelf. Why? Anyway, all that crap. Up comes digital. This is a whole new world because eMusic and iTunes, these were stores with unlimited shelf space. You never run out of shelf space. If something's in stock, it's not to the detriment of anything else. Everything's available. All you have to do is plug in a new hard drive, right? And you didn't have to do co-ops in order to get onto the shelf. And you didn't need a pick, pack, and ship warehouse of people in a finance department for returns and processing. All All you needed was the internet and a computer because you could move a digital file from point A to point B. So the, the key was getting the contract with iTunes, that it could let you move the the file from point A to point B. And I was thinking about this. I'm like, how am I going to stay in business? And it occurred to me, why don't I just change the business model? Right now, I'm going out and I'm editorially deciding who I think has value. I'm signing them to a contract. I'm splitting the money with them if the music sells. Uh, sometimes with record labels, not sometimes. With most of the other record labels, as an artist, you have to transfer ownership of your copyright. You have to say, I recorded this music, but I'm going to give it to you. Now you're going to own it. And when the music sells, I'm going to get... 12% of the money, you're going to get 88% of the money. And all this is swirling in my head and I'm like, shit, you know what I should do is I should just create a way where any artist can come and they can piggyback off my contract. I'll just put it into iTunes for them. And when it sells, I'll just give them all the money. And I'll just charge them a one-time simple upfront flat fee. So I'll be like FedEx. You know, you can drop a CD into a FedEx, you send it to iTunes, it goes live. I'll do that and I'll remove the gatekeepers. I'll democratize the industry. So that was the idea that I'd came up with as, as my company was going out of business, I'm trying to figure out how to stay in business. And I called my old friends I worked with at eMusic, Gary and Peter. And Gary and Peter were living in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Gary was working as a, a, as a programming engineer for CVS. Peter was selling pianos because uh, that's what Peter was doing. And um, <laughs> Gary quit his day job. Uh, Peter quit his job. Peter's father had passed away. And Peter took his entire inheritance, I think it was like thirty dollars or $40,000, and we used that to start TuneCore. And uh, it was an idea in October of 2005. We went live January of 2006. Sent, and because of all my old spin art connections, you know, everyone had a perception of spin art being bigger than it actually was. And I sent out a press release. And again, the timing was right. And we just got adopted as sort of the, the, the solution to the major labels, who at that time were suing grandmothers, for you know, file sharing and stealing, and everyone was complaining about seventeen dollars CDs, and um, yeah, the thing just took off. And the next thing you know, I ended up. Uh, you know, here's here's another crazy f- story. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, but why won't it work? Of course it'll work. And I need to re- need more money. I need more money because I need to be able to build more infrastructure because there's this huge wave coming towards me and I, I can't handle it. I need more people. I need more technology. Um, So I decided I'm going to try to raise raise $500,000. You know, why not? Yeah. And an old friend of mine, again, from eMusic, this guy named John Catterin, who had a background as a CPA and and an auditor, who was also in a band and released like that album. So, you know, John helped me as a friend on the side. Yeah, you know, here, let me help you a little bit. Business plan, right? I don't know how to put the stuff into an Excel spreadsheet in in a way that a venture capitalist would like to see. So I began just cold calling people. And by the way, this is one thing I can give to anyone listening to this podcast or yourself, and you already know this. Anything you want to do, you're already at no. So the worst thing that can happen is you pick up the phone and call somebody, and they already say the thing that you already have. You can't be afraid to call people. You can't be afraid to reach out. Just call. The worst they're going to say is no, and that's where you are now. But if you call, you never know. You never know what's going to come out of it. Right. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter who, where, or what pick up the phone, call them. Don't send them an email. Call them. Yeah. All right. Hold up. Well, anyway, so um, I, through another weird set of circumstances and events, I put this thing up on LinkedIn that I'm looking for someone doing business development. Right, I had no budget to pay them. And the person ends up saying, you know, uh, you can't afford me, but why don't you make an introduction to you to these other people? Anyway, the already too long story short is I ended up on a phone call one day with 15 people through a company called Guitar Center, which at the time was publicly traded. It had a market cap of I don't know how many billions of dollars. And I'm on this phone call, and I'm pitching my little heart out to these people. I don't even know who they are, really. And I'm trying to convince them to invest in us. And I'm like, "All oh, your customers are going to want to use this. And one guy on the phone says, hey, listen, I'm going to be in New York. and I meet up with you when I'm there yeah. next week at our 14th Street store? I'm like, yeah, sure. And the person hangs up, and I continue pitching my little heart out over the phone. It's a big conference call. And um, when we're done, I say, by the way, who, who was that that I'm meeting with next week? They said, oh, that's our CEO, uh, Marty Albertson. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I go to the 14th Street store the following week, and I'm hoping to God the website doesn't crash. And I do my little dog and pony in the manager's office of the 14th Street Guitar Center with Marty. At a certain point, Marty asks everyone else to leave the room. And he says, all right, what do you want? I said, we're trying to raise a half a million dollars. And he says, all right, I'll give you two million. Tell me what I get. Oh, okay. Can I get back to you? (laughs) So I leave there. I pick up the phone. I call John. I'm like, he's like, well, there you go. So anyway, uh, that was the original investment through a strategic partner that had pre-aggregated all of my customers, and we began to build the company. And then along the way, um, uh, Fox Interactive showed up. They had just acquired MySpace, and uh, we're a couple years in. God, this was 2008, and uh, and we launched the company in 2006. Closed the first round of funding, December of two thousand and six, scaled up two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. Fox Interactive shows up and asks if they can buy us. Um, you know, and we, I kept meeting up with the MySpace guys, but it was just weird. It just it it didn't it didn't it didn't gel. It didn't feel right. Yeah, and uh, I was out trying to raise more money, so I could scale more, do more, and I gave up and. Then I got an inbound phone call from a venture capital group called Opus Venture Capital. And the, uh, the guy that started the fund, his name is Gil Kogan. And Gil had, you know, this was his, quote, small fund. His last one, I think, it was Lightspeed Venture. was a, like a $14 billion fund. This was only a billion dollar fund only. And uh, I, I, Gil, I guess, just wanted to get into the space, into the music space. And they flew me out. I met with them. I guess he liked what he saw. They invest in people. and uh, They like to invest in leaders in emerging market spaces. And I closed a $7 million investment round from Opus Venture Capital. And from there, uh, we began to scale the company up even more. And very quickly, uh, TuneCore became the largest music distribution company on the planet under this new business model where everyone had access to distribute their music onto the shelves of the stores where people would go to buy it, keep all of their copyrights, get 100% of the revenue, and just pay us a simple flat fee for that service. And it was the right business model. It's still one I believe in. It's non-exploitive. I don't promise, you know, I'm not going to make your hopes and dreams. I'm going to do this one thing. I will deliver your music. It will go live. I will collect your money and I will pay it all to you monthly. And we do it and we did it. And we did it right. We did it fair, uh, faster, better than anybody else. And then a couple years in, I learned about the second sort of royalty called uh, songwriters, music publishing, right? So very quickly, uh, Sony Records hires Whitney Houston to sing a song called I Will Always Love You. The recording of that song is owned by Sony Records. Mm-hmm. However, the lyric and melody of that song was written by Dolly, Do- Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Right. So those are the two separate copyrights. There's one for the recording owned by Sony, and there's a second separate copyright for the lyric and melody. That's called the composition. And every time that recording streams, let's say, on Spotify or gets downloaded from iTunes, there's two separate royalties. One goes to Dolly and one goes to Whitney. Or sorry, one goes to Sony, one goes to Dolly. Right. So, I have all these things uh, for the recordings for the Sony Records, right? I, I can see how many times a recording is being downloaded, and where and what country. Yeah. And from that, I'm able to identify the the second royalty that's not being paid. And all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit! So at this time, I think the, at that time we had done about four hundred million, five hundred million in top in in gross music sales, right? The, so the everybody else that came in, the ones that didn't get signed, were selling like half a billion dollars worth of music in a couple of years, and I identified about $100 million, additional money they had generated as the songwriters, mm, okay. as the lyric and melody person, that they never got paid. And it turns out that this money, this other $100 million had been, been being given to these other music rights organizations around the world. These are called collection agencies. This gets very technical very quickly. But the short version was this was their money. It was never paid to them. The composition, the Lyric and Melody had never been licensed in the first place, so it was actually technically infringement. They were acting as if they were licensed, paying the royalties to uh, these collection agencies. These collection agencies would take a piece of it for their job of administering it back, which they didn't do, and then they would get put into something called a black box, which is a terminology for, I don't know whose money this is, where they would sit on it for a period of time and then hand it over to the other music companies based on their market share. So, oh, this happens to this day. This is hundreds of millions of dollars. This is not 20 bucks. So this is the emerging, the new music industry, which is the everyman, coming through generating significant revenue in aggregate between all of them and not getting it and it going into the pockets of the traditional companies because that's the system that has existed. They just split up money based on market share. And people don't even realize they're being robbed or infringed upon because it's so technical wow. and so confusing. So um after leaving TuneCore which was not a pleasant departure the
1: uh... And 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 I have, I have another question too like how did you end up building the relationship with let's say uh, a company like Apple right like i ha- what, <clears throat> what goes into saying like hey Guys, we have this idea of how to make this work. Like, What, what was that process?
0: It, so it, that is a great question. Uh, the answer was I had the benefit of my record label, Spin Art, and its reputation and the preexisting relationships that I had. And because I had gotten into it at birth with E Music, Good Noise, we all knew each other. So I was there when the first company came up. It was all the same people bouncing around from company to company. I had a reputable rec- record label. So it was a simple phone call. I was able to pick up the phone, call my person at, at Apple iTunes, say, hey, would you mind if I got a second contract? I'm going to use it for this new distribution company. They're like, yeah, sure. And they just they gave it to me.
1: Wow. You so so, so before, um, before TuneCore, how would an uh, independent artist like myself would have gotten on to, to Apple? Like, how would that, that even happen? The,
0: so the, the, the option would have been you would have needed to have been signed to a traditional record label. Uh, and then there was CD Baby which was a company that was built around physical CDs, pick, pack, and ship of physical, mm-hmm. right? And um, CD Baby became a way, f- you could have gone to CD Baby, but the difference with CD Baby is they would take 9% of your money when the music sold. And it was a less of a, a technology process. It was more that you physically mail it into them and, and some other stuff. So that was really it. There wasn't a, a simple way for anyone to get on there. Uh, at its peak, you know you could hit our website, upload a song and within fifty eight seconds it would be live on iTunes right I mean it would just, it was like
1: no i I used uh, I used a TuneCore core as well thank you like when I was um, so I was in a college band and that I managed in two thousand and eight and we were YouTube stars. so what we would do we would go on online and uh, whatever hot song had just come out, we would get the acoustic guitar. We would keep the chorus, but I would write original lyrics. So it would be a remix of the song that you know. So a fan can identify with like, oh, okay, but I know this song. I know this chorus, but then I put my own original lyrics on it. It's called a derivative
0: work. You need a license to do that.
1: Oh, probably so. (laughs) Probably (laughs) so. But I mean, back then it was like the Wild West. I know. So you know, before a song would – a music video would come out. So let's uh, say, for instance – Bruno Mars, Billionaire. Yep. Big big song on the radio. The video hasn't come out yet. Oh, that's new. Let's do a cover-up. Cover. Oh, yeah. Before the video comes out, everyone's searching for it. Yep. And we would pop up. You know, so the thing you know, we get like a million hits, two million hits. Yep. But then we have original music that we had made and gear people towards that. that. Really smart, yeah, great they, way to do and it. And they would buy buys. So we were making thousands of dollars. Good for you. And and thanks to TuneCore, uh, back in college. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, you made me a lot of money, man. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hey, man, without you, I wouldn't have existed. So it's it's a symbiotic relationship. Seriously, I, I if I had talent, I would have been in a band.
1: Because what where is your uh? entrepreneurial spirit come from? Before we go into the other points, one thing that as you're talking, uh, you know, you didn't come from, your dad was a dentist. Yeah. Your mom worked in advertising, but you never really
0: had the, the desire or the, you never really worked for anybody else. No, I don't think I can. Uh, that's part of the problem. And, you know, uh, although mom and dad sound stable and good in, you know, aside from being married where it was hell, um, you yeah, know, we were on food stamps at one point. You know, it's not like I was—I had a, a luxurious uh, life. You know, I had a single mother trying to make it with two kids, and uh, and it was tough. So, where does it come from? I don't know. I guess kind of when you get left home alone when you're in first grade, you got to walk home from school and take care of yourself. It's just if you don't do it, who is? Yeah. You know, um, and that was that was my life growing up. It was a single mom working her ass off to try to make ends meet, and I had to take care of myself.
1: Yeah, you know, I I'm, but, I'll always say in, in in every interview that. I always ask a, a couple of key questions, um, but one of the questions I always ask, you know, what do your parents do? Because I'm a firm believer that n- n- no one's here by accident. Uh, no one just turns out to be who they are just because they okay, become who they are. You're you're uh, heavily influenced by the environment by which you grew up in. Your parental uh, influences are very very important. Like my mom was a single parent, uh, entrepreneur, hairstylist. Yep. So. That's what I grew up seeing, and that's how I know how to make money. It's like, oh, I'm creative, and let's make something out of it. and yeah, you do and, it. And the same goes uh, goes for you. Yeah. Um, so, like, now your TuneCore is, is very successful. Let's, let's pick back up um, sure. in, so, in the story.
0: So, yeah, unfortunately, about five and a half years ago, uh, and it's a very complex story, but the long story short is Opus Venture Capital, Gil Kogan, in particular, breached his responsibilities as a board member of, of TuneCore. And either because he wasn't paying attention or because he was doing it intentionally, I uh, couldn't tell you. But the long story short is, and you can read all of this online, by the way. I'm going to stop for a second. Uh, uh, you know, m- Typically, information like this isn't public, but there's been multiple lawsuits. There's online affidavits, uh, and you can, you can read all this stuff. So yeah, the long story short is um, in my opinion what it what happened is gill attempted to push the company into insolvency intentionally he withhold a, a chunk of money after telling us suspend it the company went insolvent almost legally insolvent from a monday to a tuesday uh my opinion was he just wanted to get his money out because the, uh, the way venture capital cycles work, they usually have windows of time, you know, five to seven years. Then they need the liquidity back. The money that they get comes from, like, the Fireman's Pension Fund out of, the, out of Oregon, as an example, the teachers' union, right? So they've got to get the money back. And, um, yeah, he, he really messed up the company. Uh, Peter Wells, one of the founders, uh, was pushed out, terminated about a month before that. And I, I had to go to war, um, literally go to war with my board of directors and Gill in particular uh, because he had pushed the company, said, go ahead and spend this money. Then we're going to give you the money because we know you're not going to have it, you know, so you're not left in the cat. And yeah. we spent the money and went and said, you can have the money now. He's like, nah, I'm not going to give it to you. I mean, it, 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 this is actually what happened. This is not hyperbole. This is exactly what happened. It's like, well, now we're going to go out of business. And then he said, I had to call... The, uh, the law firm of O'Melvany and Myers, OMM, who I-, I had retained, which is another interesting story because I'm standing in his office about to take his money many years ago. He was going to hire OMM for his side. I was supposed to hire my own attorney. He goes, no, you hire them. I'll go hire someone else. It turns out to our buddies, OMM's across the street from his office, and they do a lot of work for Opus. But naivete and, you know, you learn the hard way. So um, I call OMM, and I speak to them, and they're like, no, you're not technically legally solvent. Insolvent, okay, because if you're technically legally insolvent, it changes the way the company has to operate And for our audience, I mean, I know what legally insolvent means. What what does that mean? I honestly don't can't give you the legal technical definition, but basically it is it, you are you do not have money You cannot operate you are out you are dead and under that uh, Definition the rules of how you operate change and it allows other entities where you have debt or investment to sort of make operational decisions, okay or sell off assets, okay. sell pieces of the company, or get their money out in different ways. So we weren't. And I, can't, I realized I actually had a solution to the problem. Um, and then I got in a fight with them over that. They, they wouldn't let me do it. And I, I don't think I'm allowed to disclose what that was. But ultimately, on the recommendation of an outside auditor and a law firm, they approved it. And so uh, they couldn't, Gil couldn't say no to this. And what we did is we, uh, we were able to take this, this money and it bridged about three months. And for the next three months, we laid off about 10%, 20% of the staff <clears throat> to reduce our spend and so forth. But the long story short is three months later, we were cash flow positive, mm. right? <clears throat> so I'm going to this board meeting. Now, so for the listeners and for yourself, I'm a CEO of a company. And once you take someone else's money, money is expensive. Money is very expensive. And if you take someone else's money, uh your job is to get them return on their money your fiduciary responsibility is to work on behalf of the shareholders of the company that's a very important thing to, to note because morally i my my moral compass says i'm here to work for the artist i'm not here to make other people rich i want to write or wrong i want to make the world better but if you're the ceo and you take someone else's money you know, sometimes, and I never did do this, but sometimes you'll have to make a decision that works to the detriment of your moral compass and where you think the world should go because it doesn't work to the benefit of the shareholders. Right. Right? And those two things can be in conflict. So, um, you know, I report up to the board, and my job, the board hires me. The board fires me. The board pays me. You work to, at the pleasure of the board of directors. And we had... a a monthly board meeting. So the board meetings, you go in, you present the financials, you do the whole nine yards. Here's the company, here's the strategy, here's what's going on. And for the last number of months, though, we had been, Gil and I had been at each other's throats. Uh, It had been brutal. It was not friendly. And I go into the board meeting, I get congratulated, there's applause, I leave the room, and Gil says, Jeff, can you come back for a quick second? Uh, I need to talk to you. Oh, okay. So I walk in the room, and there sitting is is my uh, attorney, that I had hired for the for another guy, uh, Josh Greer, good attorney, worked for me for years at SpinArt. And Gil says, uh, effective immediately, you're terminated as CEO. Get your stuff and leave. We'll pay you for the next week. We'll find a new position. Uh, the next week? Yeah. So um, yeah, I was terminated on that day uh, without cause, meaning I didn't do anything wrong at the discretion of the board. And um, yeah, they, uh, the company that I had built from... You know it was an idea in the shower that i I had put thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in that Peter put his father's inheritance into that Gary that we all put our lives into that we i mean this this was twenty four seven man this and was, and, it, and also too extremely revolutionary I like, appreciate
1: and, that and 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 uh, there's there another business question that i I wanted to ask on as you were as you were talking like what was the need to take other yeah. people's money based on you know, I'm not much of a savvy, like, you know, "quote unquote" business dude. But if you're if you're bringing in a, uh, you have a business that doesn't, I feel like you can make a lot of profit quickly, right? It's not a like physical, it's like a transactional thing that you're doing. It's mm-hmm. almost like eBay in a sense, like they're providing
0: a service. Yeah, it's like FedEx. You're paying a, a fee for for service. It's yeah, no, fee so, for service. Yeah. So
1: I feel like, like, what was the need to take money from venture capital? Like what? Why, oh,
0: oh! So, like, why do we need venture capital? Yeah, because you need people, you need infrastructure, you need marketing, you need scale. So, you know, if your company takes off and you have a uh, hundred thousand people show up tomorrow, can you handle it? You mm. know, uh, we couldn't have handled it. I needed the ability to, you know, you need a technology pipeline that could handle a hundred thousand people hitting a website. Okay. I need the ability to take these these uploads of music files. That, that was big, broad uh, bandwidth back then. Okay. Convert music files into a different file format from MP3 to AAC, or, or alternatively the other way. Build technology that can deliver the file to iTunes with something called metadata to the specification. Then deal with the little hiccups. Are there false pauses? We see it delivered, but it's not showing up. What's going on? So you got to deal with that. Then the inbound phone calls of customer care. Hey, dude, where's my money? How come it's not live? I know it sold. Uh, So you got to deal with that. Okay. And even when it didn't sell, then you have to deal with the royalty ingestion and processing. So if you're, you know, as the company grew and grew and grew, you know, millions upon millions upon millions of sound recordings selling. And every month you get these massive statements that come to you. And the statements are, you can't open them in Excel they're huge. So you have to open them in a, in a cloud-based well now cloud-based environment and you got to map and match each line of those statements back to a particular recording which gets mapped back to a particular customer and then build a system to distribute literally hundreds of millions of dollars and then create a way for all that to be auditable. So if anyone ever complains or comes after you or you need to be compliant with regulations, it's all there. It's so that in the infrastructure build is one thing and then marketing if you want to be the leader in the space, you know, look at Amazon. It, it lost money forever. Uh, but it spent it all on dominating its space in order to then flip the switch and become profitable. So hiring in talent, you, know, you want people that are, are very good at what they do. Uh, you hire slowly and fire quickly. And bringing in sort of best of show. And you know, people of, of quality and talent are expensive. Not mm-hmm. cheap, right? And so you're either paying them a big salary that they're used to or giving them a big salary and a percentage of the company and stock options and equity. So it, it, that, it's, it's all of that stuff. Okay. Okay. Right? And this is stuff I learned along the way. I didn't know it ahead of time. It's just like, oh, I need another person to do customer care. Oh, shoot, we need to get a bigger pipeline to take more of this stuff. What is that going to cost? And you know, to his credit, despite my, my personal disgust for uh, Gil Kogan and what he did, which was morally disgusting but ethically inappropriate and from a business, perci- business perspective, stupid as shit. Uh, his own board of directors should hand him his head because had he not been so short-sighted and allowed us to continue on the journey we were on, the exit for the company, because ultimately TuneCore was bought, I was able to find a buyer for it, and everyone made money, they would have made a hell of a lot more money. So he cut off his own nose to spite his face, uh, which is really a shame. And along the way, hurt a lot of people, my friends that didn't need to get hurt, uh, because his inability to understand the space, because he messed up. But anyway, what he was very good at, it was educating me and how to build and scale a company. It was a great resource of knowledge, and he taught me many things about how to do that. And understanding, you know, you stay focused. You can have, uh, do the one thing you're going to do, and do it better than anybody else in the world, and just execute on that. You know, you can't simultaneously be the best distribution company in the world into iTunes and manufacture CDs. Those are two different things. Right. Right. Focus all march on the the beachhead at the same time. Focus your energies on that. Wow. Uh, And that was very useful in understanding how to scale and what people to bring in. Uh, And, you know, I thought these salaries that these people were getting paid, I was like, oh, my God. But it was well worth it. You know, it was this team of people. Under, under my guidance, I were able to execute on the vision and build the company to the largest mu- music distribution entity in the world, which basically, within a couple of years, became the size of EMI, uh, one of the major record labels. And then, you know, changed the model, revolutionize the world, improve things for the artists. That's the thing that
1: is, I think, most important about what you've done in your career, is allowing artists to have freedom.
0: Well, that's what I'm most proud of, to be honest. It, it's uh, There was a wrong. I wanted to right a wrong. The wrong was when digital came up, artists were still being told you need to transfer ownership of your copyrights and give away you know, 88% of your money, but we're not going to provide the same services or features or advances or anything that we used to do before, and we're going to do it simply because we have the magic contract. And that just wasn't right. You know, it, you're moving the file from point A to point B. It doesn't need to be like that. You'd hear this bullshit. Well, we're, you know, There were companies that said, well, we're only going to take 30% of your money. Why are you taking any? Well, we're going to market and promote you. Really? How many releases (laughs) how many releases do you get a month? Oh, we've got ten thousand releases. So you got ten thousand releases coming through you a month? Who are you picking who to market and promote? And how are you gonna do that? Oh, we'll send an email to get you featured. Okay, so you send one email to the dude at iTunes who editorially decide who to feature. Uh Uh-huh. What else are you gonna do? Well, that's really it. And what if it doesn't work? And what if the band goes out and busts their ass and they tour and they gig and they create opportunities and fame and they monetize that fame? Now they're giving you 30% of the money right? for doing what? For moving the file from point, of, that's just not right. Remember, uh, the, there was an artist named Rebecca Black, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember her with Fridays. Friday. Yeah. She went through CD Baby. What did CD Baby do to cause that to be a hit? Nothing. Nothing. She made that video, she, you know, wrote that song in collaboration with that, that company that did it. She ended up paying CD Baby hundreds of thousands of dollars because 9% of the money coming in went to them, but they didn't do anything right through through look drake used toon right i mean there's nobody when i was running the company there's nobody that you can think of during that time frame of 2006 through 2012 any artist almost that you want to mention of any note or notoriety from that time frame used to first or still using them from civil wars to drake uh, i mean just the the list uh blood on the dance floor i could it's been a while so i got to dust off the, the cobwebs but it was just everybody and you know what? Nine-inch nails. I got. Made, I made the same $50 on nine-inch nails that I made on the kid in the bedroom. Then people say, well, you're taking advantage of the kid in the bedroom. Uh, you know? yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Do you, you yell at FedEx when he FedExes a CD to somebody? No, I didn't say I'm going to make him a star. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put his music onto the shelf, and I'm going to tell him the truth. This is hard. This is really hard. Now, technologies change things, so you have opportunity. If you create the piece of art that causes reaction, you have a way to reach people in mass, and that in turn should trigger revenue for you. But I can't help you write the music. That's not what I do. You can get on YouTube just like uh, Bono from YouTube can get on YouTube. Exactly. Look, look what you did. Perfect example. You can get on Twitter, MySpace. You can be found and discovered. You could go in and see the playlist into iTunes that said music to have sex to, put in 12 songs, and put yours between uh, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin to legitimize yourself. You can do the exact same thing a major record label can do. You no longer have a gatekeeper to radio because people aren't using radio to discover anymore. You don't have a gatekeeper to MTV. That doesn't play videos. You can upload it to YouTube. You don't have a gatekeeper to get you under the shelf. MP3 blogs exist. MP3 blogs exist. Social networking. It's work. It's hard. But now you have access. You just got to create the piece of art that does it, right? And And,
1: and also, also, too, I always think that it's important in business. To always make, or in life, to make things about other people. I feel like when you get into the the business of making money, you you may be successful for a short period of time, but you need people in order to be successful. It always goes back to people. It does. You know. So whenever you do good for people, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend about Apple, and and uh, how Apple I feel like is losing touch of innovation and doing things for people, and now is in the business of of it feels like making money, and making money and making profit is more important. Um, but when you do that, you lose loyalty. Yeah.
0: I mean, I agree with you. Your, your focus in running a business or your endeavors should be about not about making money. It should be about the other thing first. And right. if you do the other thing first, well, the, the side effect of that yep. will be success. The byproduct of success
1: and yeah. money and, I, I, and whatever I couldn't else. I could agree with that more. And once you, once you left uh, um, – Toon no, unfortunately yeah. – Where where did that lead you
0: now? So what I did next was I launched this company called Audium. Mm -hmm. Uh, TuneCore threatened to sue me if I started the company, saying that I couldn't, and I was like, well, tough. Uh, So anyway, moving into Audium. So what Audium does is it gets the Dolly Partons of the world, the songwriters, paid when recordings of their songs stream on the Internet. All right, We are what's called a reproduction collection agency. So... Basically, uh, this is important. This is some, some real educational stuff. Um, if you write a song called Fruit Gummies. <laughs> yeah, Fruit Snacks. Fruit Snacks. All right, let's say you write a song called Fruit Snacks. Okay, the song exists in your head. You don't have any copyrights to it because it's not tangible. It only gets copy- copyrights the minute it becomes tangible. So how does it become tangible? You either write it down or you record it. So let's just stick with the recording right now. So the minute there's a recording of your song, Fruit Snacks, whether I recorded it, you recorded it, someone else recorded it, you get these six copyrights. The right of reproduction, the right of public performance, the right of distribution, the right of derivatives, the right of public display, and the right of digital transmission. Yes, that's a mouthful. But those six copyrights dictate how other people can use your lyric in your melody, what licenses they need and how much they need to pay you. All right, So you are now three things. You are the songwriter because you wrote the song called Fruit Snacks. You're the music publisher because you own the copyright to Fruit Snacks the song, mm-hmm. and you are the publishing administrator because you sign contracts and you collect the money. You make the business decision. So gotcha. you have three things. Now, you can do a deal with another company, and you can say, listen, I only w- I don't want to deal with the business stuff. Can I hire you, Jeff, to be my publishing administrator? So I'll still be the songwriter because I wrote it. I'll still be the music publisher because I uh, I own it. But you, Jeff, you go sign the contracts and collect the money and enforce those six copyrights that I just ticked off. Okay. Right? That's called a publishing administration deal. And then I would collect the money, take a piece, and kick the rest back to you. Got right? it. Got it. Now, if you don't do that with me, then you are all three things. You're the songwriter because you wrote it. You're the publisher because you own it. And you're the administrator because you're dealing with the six copyrights. So you're what we call a self-published songwriter. Right? Gotcha. So I work for the publishing administrator. Okay. okay? Those three things. Songwriter, publisher, administrator, either because you're self published or because you did a deal with another company like Roundhill Music Publishing, which is an umbrella organization that represents a whole bunch of Dolly Partons. Okay. Right? They do all the administration. So those are my clients. And one of the rights that you have is the right of public performance. So when your lyric and melody is publicly performed, meaning someone plays it at a concert, it's played on television, it's streamed on the internet, or YouTube from a bunch of college or kids, or YouTube. Exactly. If there's a stream on the Internet at YouTube, if there's a stream on Spotify, if it's played, if there's a recording played in a noodle shop in Japan, if there's music in an elevator, right? These are all something called public performances. So now you have to go and have an ear and listen to the entire world and the entire Internet and discover every time a recording of your song is played. And then you have to make sure the entity that's doing that is licensed and pays you. And you can't do that. You have no infrastructure. Like, nobody could really do that. So what you're going to do is hire a company to do this for you. This company is called a Performing Rights Organization, and it represents and works for just one of these six copyrights. And that company in the United States, there's four of them. There's ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR. These are performing rights organizations, and what you will do is you will become a member of their organizations. You're like, dude, will you go out in the world and just put your ear to the ground, anytime there's a public performance, you deal with licensing and collection. So you've outsourced one of those six rights. Okay, let's go to the next right, the right of reproduction. That's me. Okay, I'm right number two. The right of reproduction says every time your lyric and melody is reproduced, there needs to be a license and a payment. That's different than a public performance. So what's a reproduction? A reproduction is physically manufacturing vinyl or CD of a recording of your song. So Sony Records hires Whitney Houston. They sing I Will Always Love You. They manufacture 10,000 CDs. That's 10,000 reproductions of Dolly Parton's Lyric and Melody. Gotcha. So that needs a license and a payment. Um, A reproduction kind of has two subsets to it, right? There's reproduction for something called synchronization and there's reproduction for something called mechanical royalties. Synchronization is when your lyric and melody is synchronized to a moving image like a movie, right? So either you're recording someone else's there is no governmental intervention there. The person that wants to use your lyrical ability calls you. You have to negotiate a license. I'll pay you this much money. These are the terms. They go back and forth. They pay you a check, and, and you're done. Mechanical royalties are regulated by the United States government, and they do set the royalty rate on what you're paid. Okay. okay? In some cases, there is no mechanical royalty. For example, Pandora or SiriusXM. These are what we call non-interactive services. So the services like radio. You can't pick and choose what exactly you want, right? And because of that, there's no mechanical royalty being paid. Go over to Spotify, you can start and stop, go backwards, go forwards. It's like your own music. Yep. There is a mechanical royalty being paid. Got you. Right? So what I did is I created an entity that would work on behalf of the Dolly Partons, the publishing administrators, to assure that the YouTubes and Spotify's of the world, synchronization for YouTube, because it's a, it's a movie, Mm-hmm. Right, there's not mechanical royalties there. It's a synchronization license, and Spotify, Apple Music, Title, uh, Napster, formerly Rhapsody, etc. Mm-hmm. Those places were were properly licensed and making the payments every time a recording of the song streamed. Got gotcha. you. So I'm wow. a reproduction collection agency, and we provide the service for the United States and Canada. And what we discovered is, it turns out that most of the music services didn't bother to get a license. They just kind of Napstered it. They stole it. They just took the, the lyrics and the melodies without first getting the license from, necessary. From the, the, from the Dolly, Dolly Parts. Partons. Yep, yep. And that's called copyright infringement. And the way we figured that out was honestly, uh, you know, Bob Dylan's a client, Metallica's a client, Red Hot Chili Peppers is a client, Jason Mraz, Roundtale Music Publishing. Third So we represent and work with a lot of, of big catalogs, a lot of big songwriters, and also for the everyman I mean, anyone could just go to the website and sign up. We work for you. There's no upfront fee. But what happens is you give us the information about your songs. Here's the name of my song. I wrote it. I own 100% of it. I've created a second thing called a publishing company. This is the name of the publishing company, right? So we get the information from you about your song or with Bob Dylan. I'll use All Along the Watchtower, a great song. And he'll tell us all the information about that. Then what we will do is we'll be Sherlock Holmes. Before we do anything else, we will go out into the world and we will find every commercially released sound recording that exists of that one song and get all the information around that. Okay. So there's 704 recordings right now that we've been able to identify of all along the Watchtower. One is by Bob Dylan himself. Yep. There's one by Jimi Hendrix. There's one by Pearl Jam. Uh, there's one by the Grateful Dead. And then every single Tim, to, Tim Sue, and Sally. Yeah. Right, But we're able to find it because we built systems where we can... Ser- Basically, in my my database, I have what's called the metadata, the information about every commercially released sound recording that is sitting on the shelves of the music services. So we have all that. Yeah. And then what we do is we do a search. Hey, can you provide me an output that shows me every recording with some permutation of all along the watchtower? And we get an output. We get rid of the things that shouldn't be there, and we're left with a finite list. So now I have... All the information about the composition, the composition name along the watchtower, the songwriter, Bob Dylan, the publishing entity, in this case with Dylan, it's called Ramshorn, what percentage, he wrote the whole thing himself, so he owns 100% of it, versus he wrote it with somebody else, so maybe he owns 50%, and they own 50%, I Have all the information around that. And now I have a list of every sound recording, and all the data around all the sound recording, the performing artist, the name of the record, the runtime, who distributed it, and something called an ISRC which is what a computer database knows a sound recording by. All Along the Watchtower is not called All Along the Watchtower in a computer database. It's called USX147, right? So the Bob Dylan version of All Along the Watchtower is USX147. The Jimi Hendrix version is US493428, right? And that's how you track it. So what happens is the computer connects the recording to the composition, staples them together. Gotcha. So every time the recording streams, they can pay for the recording and... They'll also pay the separate song, publisher. Song gotcha. Writer. Right. So we, so we know all the information ahead of time. And then what we do is we notify the services. Hey, I've been hired by these, you know, this following person or songwriter or publisher to work for them. And then the service begins to send us the royalty statements. Okay. Right? So what we do is we go in there, we make sure all the information's in their database. They didn't make any stupid little errors because some intern in 1986 entered something the wrong way somewhere. We clean all that up and then we get the royalty statements. We take them and we look at them because the royalty statements contain a line listing of every recording that's getting paid on. Now, if I know there's 704 recordings of all along the watchtower and I see that we're only getting paid on three of them, I'm like, what about the other 701? Right. And then I can check to see if those other 701 are live in that service and if they streamed. And I go back and go, uh, you didn't pay on these. You didn't pay on these other 701. Oh, you breaking legs out here, baby. Yeah. And so basically what happened is as you move through time we discovered that it didn't matter if it was Dolly Parton, if it didn't matter if it was Herbie Hancock, it didn't matter if it was James Taylor, it didn't matter if the entire Ruthless Records estate we worked for, uh, Mike Campbell, who wrote Boys of Summer and and co-wrote with Tom Petty, it didn't matter Jason Mraz, Metallica, it didn't matter who it was, what genre it was, we got the same results every time, which is like 80 to 85% of the sound recordings of the compositions were not getting paid on. And in some cases, none of the sound recordings of the composition were getting paid on. This in turn led to us unearthing the fact that it wasn't that the music services were licensed and then not following the rules of the license. It turns out they weren't licensed in the first place. They just took the stuff and they built no infrastructure to take information and they never bothered to ask for it. And the end result is this massive copyright infringement, which in turn led to uh, the, and the National Music Publishing Association settlement with Spotify, which they had been working on, but it became, became a catalyst. Cattle. So let me say this a different way. Imagine for a moment you live in a community and everyone, all you do is drink water. That's all you guys drink. Yeah. And everyone in the community is getting sick and no one quite knows why. And you think there's something wrong with the water, but no one's been able to prove it. Along comes a company and goes in and they empirically prove that the water has been poisoned by the chemical company up the street. And you cannot refute it. It's irrefutable, impeachable evidence. Now, everyone in the community knows that they've been poisoned by the chemical company up the street. The end result of that is people in the community are going to do different things in order to deal with that. So a whole bunch of them might band together and do what's called a class action lawsuit. A couple of other people will go, oh, fuck this, I'm just going to go do a settlement with them. Some other people will go, screw the settlement and the class action lawsuit. I'm going to sue the crap out of them. So that's what happened, is Audium exposes endemic Uh, infringement that impacted everybody. Nobody was immune to this. And we provided the hard empirical data that proved it. Here are the sound recordings. Here are the streams. Here's what's going on. Here's the communications. This in turn triggered settlements, class action lawsuits, 11 direct action lawsuits. Um, You know, right now Spotify has 11 lawsuits against them, um, totaling potential liability of $2 billion, because they've infringed on copyright, because of the way damages work in the United States for copyright infringement. They've got a class action lawsuit on behalf of a consortium of the everybody else uh, where it's waiting for a court to either uh, um, certify it or not. They've got an NMPA, National Music Publishing Association, Spotify settlement, where basically the major music publishers and members of this organization uh, gave them a pass on it for their own business reasons. Yeah. Right? That's what's going on right now as we sit. And the bottom line to all of this is the songwriters and music publishers of the world, they've been take, they have been their stuff's been stolen. And it's been stolen and used in some cases by some of the most valuable companies on the planet or the leaders in their space because there's a disconnect of how to use music. See, songwriters and record labels, we make money off of music by selling pre-recorded music or allowing people to listen to it via stream. The digital music services... They make their money not off of the sale of the music, but over how many people come to them to listen to it. Right. All right, so the difference is, let's go to Tower Records. Imagine if the value of Tower Tower Records wasn't on how many people walked in and bought the CDs, but how many people walked into Tower Records in the first place and didn't have to buy anything, Mm. right? So what happens is technology companies want to aggregate a whole bunch of people because when you aggregate a whole bunch of people, the stock market rewards you. This is the dot-com boom. We have yeah. all these companies that aggregate all these people. Now we need to translate people into money. We don't know how we're going to do it, but what the hell? We got 200 million of them, right? And so the end result of that is the value of the company increases based on the number of users. The value of the company increases because it's going to be bought by somebody else that wants access to them. Or the value of the company is realized through an IPO because the, a bank will underwrite it like Pandora who loses money but has a $2, 3000000000 billion market cap. Uh, and say, well, we're going to make you public, we're going to prop this up, and then we're going to cash out and get a huge return on our investment. Spotify's lost a half a billion dollars. They never made money, ever. Yeah. But their value is going up as they lose more money because their market share is going up. Right, right? exactly. So you have this disconnect. We want to make money off of the sale or stream of music, and they want to make money off the aggregation of people. And because we reward the aggregation of people, even though we don't make money, we end up with companies with different objectives where, oh, fuck, I don't know, I'll just steal this music. I'll deal with it later because I'm going to have an IPO worth $20 billion and this will be a speeding ticket along the way. Right. Our interests are not aligned. Right, right, And that's part of the reason we have this mess. Imagine if you couldn't go public with a public offering unless you were already profitable. Right? If Spotify had to be profitable before it went live, we'd probably have a very different conversation now. And the other thing is this, you know, you get a lot of complaints from the music services that say, well, you know, we we had to infringe. It's your fault. I'm going to blame the victim because you're the music industry. You don't have your shit together technologically. So how are we supposed to get the data? Well, with all due respect, blaming the victim isn't really the solution. And we do have the data. You just never bothered to ask for it. And you lied when you said it wasn't there. Because if, do you know what songs you wrote, Corey? Yes. Okay. Did anyone ever ask you from Spotify? No. Okay. So, you know, that, that's my point on that. Then the next point on it is um, the services complain that the cost of the music is too high, that they have to pay out seventy-seven zero percent of their revenue uh, in order to pay for the sound recordings and the compositions. You know what? You're right. Uh, but maybe you're not pricing the product at the right price point, and maybe you're selling something that people don't want. Most people don't seem to want to pay $10 a month for access to 35 million songs. Maybe your product isn't the right product. And if you are going to sell it, maybe $10 or free isn't the right price point. Right. Right? Why don't you do a different product or a different price point? Maybe it is $50 a month instead of $10 a month. Oh, well, lots of, most people won't buy it. Okay, that's right. right. Yeah. And maybe you made a product that only has a small subset that one. It's really hard to create something that's mass consumable. It's difficult. But if you're going to use somebody else's shit to do it, you got to get a license and you got to make a payment, and then you're going to whine over the cost of goods. This is like Apple complaining that the chip manufacturer is charging them too much, and that's why they're losing money on iPhones. They raised the price. So go raise the price. Oh, we're not going to have customers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you have a bad business model. Which is why you shouldn't be going public with a stock offering that will have you valued at $20 billion, which is being propped up by the bankers and investors in order to get a return on their investment because we're all buying this bullshit. And you're decimating the industry on the way so each one of your original investors can walk away with billions. That's what's happening. You know, go build a product that's, that's of value to both the music industry and to the consumer. It's hard. It's really hard, but if you do that, then you're going to win, and you're going to win big, and you're going to pull up all the boats with you because you've created a valuable product, which everyone has some incentive to be part of. But this system right now sucks, and our interests aren't aligned, and you whining that our data isn't there is bullshit, and you complaining that it costs too much is bullshit as well. You Go sell shoes. You could be Zappos. Who stopped you? You chose to be in the sector, use other people's stuff to attract a lot of people. You had two choices, pornography or music. You went with music. Go build a product of value.
1: Well, Jeff, I appreciate you. You are a renegade. You are fighting for artists, you are fighting for creatives, and you're in the business of people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that is an amazing legacy of what you what you've done in your in your life and your career is remarkable.
0: Well, it's very kind of you. I, I do want to leave with this. I would not have a career unless people like you existed, unless an artist or a musician allowed me to work for them, we all exist off your coattails. Don't ever forget that. All of us, we don't have the talent. You do. You make culture. You make art. You make the world go around, and all of us are trying to work for you. Don't ever forget that. Jeff
1: Price, you were the man. I appreciate you. It's true. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm glad that we connected. I'm glad we met. <laughs> Thank you for your
0: time. My man. Enjoy your fruit snacks.
1: <laughs> and, and and black cocaine. McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> Later, brother. Later. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Byrd of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.